The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're digging into the history and biography of Alan Turing, the World War II codebreaker and father of modern computing. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is Dr. Andrew Hodges, Senior Research Fellow and Tutor in Mathematics at Wadham College at the University of Oxford. His book, Alan Turing, The Enigma, first appeared in 1983 and has remained in print ever since, with the most recent edition having been published in November 2014. Andrew, great to have you here. I thank you very much for inviting me. Before we get started talking about the man himself, Alan Turing as a historical figure, I think, was relatively unknown to many people until probably the last decade. Why is his story reaching us now? Or perhaps well, I think the more a question behind this: uh, What's how many scientists, let alone mathematicians, are all that well known? Quite honestly, uh, he's as well known as as most leading scientists, and certainly mathematicians are. But of course, following up what you said. Uh, there are special reasons why he's been in the news uh, more recently. In particular, there's a lot of attention to, at the moment to the role that he played in the Second World War. And I think what I'll try and explain is that his code-breaking work then formed a marvellous bridge between theory and practice in the origin of the computer. And that's the other thing that really he's absolutely central for. Your book has so much depth, both on Turing's contributions to mathematics, science and computing, but also on the man himself, his personality, his affect, um, his relationships. Did you set out to write a book that was both a personal and professional biography? I did indeed. That was exactly what I wanted to do when I first compassed the idea of, of doing such a book. That was back in 1977, I may say. At that stage, he really was unknown. I mean, I think then it would be absolutely true to say that he was very little known and people knew very little about what he'd done. And that's not so true now at all, but it was then. And what's more, little bits that were known were known in fragments. They were completely disconnected from each other. He was well known as a major figure in the theory of computer science. I mean, well known, that is, to people in that uh, technical professional area. Uh, there were just sort of rumours coming out about uh, the role he'd played in the Second World War. And there was a story which very, very few people knew, but I knew about through friends of his, about how he'd been treated after the war and the circumstances behind his death. But they were all completely separate things. No one knew the interconnections between them. And my idea was to tell a single narrative which would weave all these things together. So I want to start uh, more firmly with Alan Turing at Cambridge and his paper, Computable Numbers. At a high level, can you walk us through what problem he was solving with this and how he solved it? Well, it was something that would now, well, most people would seem ridiculously abstruse and abstract and nothing to do with any anything useful whatsoever. The thing that he had to address was, what do you mean by a method or a rule or a, a procedure in mathematics, because people are taught about rules and procedures and, and algorithms sometimes, is a more technical word. I mean, they've been there since the, since the ancient Greeks. But the question is, how you define what such a thing is? And he had to do that to solve, or to give a satisfactory answer to one of the foundational questions of mathematics as to, to what extent the methods of mathematics would be sufficient to 
to show the truth of any proposition that you wanted to examine. And that was a deep problem going back into the 19th century, uh, which had come to the fore in the 19, end of the 1920s uh, and in the 1930s when he was thinking about this. So I'm not really going to talk about the foundations of mathematics, but the thing is he addressed this question of what is a rule or a procedure in a very extraordinary way. He said, well, it's something that you think of as doing mechanically. So he got this idea that it was something it could be done by machine. Now, that's, as I said, it's just words. But he managed to turn this idea into something that was an absolutely explicit formalism, so it formed part of proper mathematics. But, well, to cut that short, you see, what he means in modern terms is that he gave his definition of what he meant by rule or procedure, which is exactly the same as what we now mean by doing something by a computer program. And that makes complete sense now, and everyone's got quite a good feeling for what computers are like and what programs can do. But in those days, in the 1930s, there weren't any computers. I mean, the the, the expression I've used didn't mean anything. A computer was a human being. It didn't even mean a machine. Uh, He had to give a, a meaning to this, which made sense in that period of the 1930s. And he did it with his mathematical paper, but he did it in a way which also makes extremely good sense now because he conceived this idea of a universal machine, which is what we now mean by a computer, which can play out any program which is put on it. And that all came into this theory that he wrote up in 1936. It had this concept of a computer program in it, but of course that didn't mean anything then. He had to invent the idea of the computer in order to give it meaning. And that seems absolutely crazy, but that's a good way of explaining how how visionary it was that to answer this problem in the philosophy of mathematics, he had to jump out of the box and think of something which is really visionary about a machine that could perform any procedure at all, uh, which something we now recognize as being what the computer does. So how was this paper from Alan Turing received at the time? Well, it came out at the end of 1936, and amongst the very small group in the world of people who knew what he was on about uh, in the foundations of mathematics and mathematical logic, yeah, it was very well received. It wasn't overlooked by any means. And, and uh, the principal people in that field, who was the logician Alonzo Church in Princeton, and Kurt Gödel, who's the most famous person, who had really, uh, really destroyed, I mean, were both destroyed and created a new form of mathematical logic in 1931, really got all this going. Certainly, uh, Gödel accepted it, and all the people influenced by them. That wasn't the problem. The thing was, it was a very small group of people doing a very, what would have been considered a very small part of mathematics, not even what most mathematicians are interested in doing. So although it made a good impact, it was in what would have seemed a very remote and not terribly important field. And by contrast, how is the paper computable number seen now? Well, one example of uh, how it's seen is that it's the reason why in the mid-1960s the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Computer Science uh, was created as the Turing Award. Uh, And that, in the 60s, is how it was seen as the foundation, the mathematical foundation of computer science. So already by that time, that's even 50 years ago, it was seen as the most important paper in the foundation of computing within mathematics and the way that computer science has effectively taken on a life of its own, but it had its roots in 
classical mathematics and Turing gave it those roots. Uh, I don't think anyone would really disagree that that is the absolute foundation of it. It defines what a computation is and it creates this idea of the universal machine on which you can do any computation. And really, that idea runs through everything now. Really, it was in the 1970s that uh, Turing's ideas took greater strength because the development of greater mathematical sophistication within computer science, in particular the development of complexity theory, which is the theory of how complicated different uh, processes are, that went back to a lot of Turing's ideas, his machine ideas, and so they got, on, they got new life in that period, which has lasted ever since. Would it be accurate to say that his interest in engineering, uh, or what would be his interest in eventually engineering an actual universal computer, probably started with some of the thought experiments within this paper? Uh, well, I think they started a bit earlier, if anything. I mean, one of the puzzles about this paper is that it came completely out of the blue, as far as the other people I've been talking about who uh, were working in mathematical logic. I mean, Turing was a completely unknown figure to them. He was indeed just a young, well, the equivalent of a postdoc uh, at uh, Cambridge University, although they didn't have the same system then. But they didn't know him. He hadn't corresponded with them. He had no precursor papers. It just This paper just appeared in 1936 without any anyone knowing anything about him at all. So it, that's that's quite unusual. I mean, on the whole, in scientific work, you get together with people and you exchange ideas and you publish some starting off ideas and then so on and then it builds up to something big. He did his big thing all in one go and it came as a complete surprise. So there's a question, biographical question, where did he get all these ideas from? And uh, there are many different ideas which go into it. There's some in classical, purely classical mathematics that he'd have learned at Cambridge uh, very much stimulated by the work of Gödel in 1931. We, I can see where that comes from. But why does he start thinking about the relationship of mind and machine? Because that's really what's going on in the paper. To what extent can you em- emulate what's being done by a person doing a computation? Can you? How can a machine copy that? Why is he thinking about minds and people doing operations? Why is he thinking about operations and sort of physical action at all in a world of logic? It's not, it wasn't prepared for. No one else had done anything like this. And I think the reason is, is his philosophical interest in the question of the mind and how the mind is embodied in the brain and the relationship between mind and matter. Uh, that certainly goes back earlier than 1936. And I think that set him off on this path of inquiry, which was so fruitful. And that actually has, a, has you can see, its intellectual base because we can see what he, things he was reading about in the early 1930s. But interestingly, it also has an emotional base uh, because the thing that's clearest about his writing is what he wrote in about 1932 to the mother of another boy at his school who died very suddenly and who he'd been very, very attracted to and meant a great deal to him. And it was his thinking about this, uh, this death this obviously very traumatic experience and the question of where the mind had gone to, what, what's happened to a person's mind, that at that stage in his young life was terribly important. And I, I do think that that set him off on a whole train of thought about the question of mind and matter, which then bears its first fruit in this work of 1936. 
It is fascinating that a lot of what Alan Turing worked on throughout his life seems to be at this intersection between mathematics, logic, and sort of philosophy of mind. It seems like he spent as much time thinking about how humans learn and what it means to be conscious or intelligent as he did about how to replicate it in a machine. Yes, that's true. I mean, that was his main scientific interest in computing. It wasn't in doing calculations faster and and better and and so, so forth. I mean, he knew that was a very important application of computing. But when in 1944-45 he started thinking about designing a computer, he called it, part-jokingly, called it building a brain. Uh, And he didn't mind using the expression electronic brain, which the newspapers used, uh, popular fiction would use, newsreels would use uh, for uh, the early computers in the late 1940s. He didn't mind using that. He, I mean, he, it's it, in a way it's ridiculous because they're nothing like as powerful as brains. But he didn't mind. He, he didn't mind that connection at all. And in fact, he certainly wrote most serious early papers on the possibilities for artificial intelligence. Uh, the most famous of those being his paper of 1950. And is that the one where he coined, or perhaps the idea of the Turing test came up? That's where he coined the idea of an operational sort of test some sort of objective way of measuring whether a, a computer was doing something that which you would call intelligent or not. Uh, yeah, it's in that paper, and that's certainly one of the most cited and referred to papers in philosophical literature. I, I certainly think that is one thing that people, or one way that people had heard Turing's name before, is this idea of the Turing test, especially in the last 10 years where it's actually come up as a practical question. Well, in fact, the people started having rather, well, just fun things, really, just as trying out these conversation programs. They've been doing that for a long time, actually. That certainly started uh, about uh, over 20 years ago. But, yes, they get a lot of publicity and, of course, developments all the time, driverless cars, all these things, and voice recognition, face recognition. They are all pushing the boundaries all the time of what it is that you think a machine could do and the rivals what a human being can do. So these questions we, which he addressed at the immediate outset of the computer period are absolutely still things that people think about all the time. Yeah. You're tuned into Science for the People, and I'm here with Andrew Hodges talking about his biography of Alan Turing titled Alan Turing, the Enigma. Uh, So most people who know Alan Turing's name associate him with the Enigma machine and World War II code breaking. How did he get recruited as a cryptanalyst at Bletchley Park? Well, that's actually related to the whole question of the... uh, We were talking about in 1936 in his work in in Logic. Uh, We can see that in what he's writing at the end of 1936 is when he first expresses an interest in doing something serious about codes and ciphers. And it it must be linked with his work of the universal machine idea because he says he's interested in the question of what's the most general kind of code or cipher. Uh, And that in the process of thinking about this, he's come across some very interesting new types of cipher. We don't know what these were, uh, but we do know that in 1937, when he was away at Princeton, um, studying actually technically for his PhD, but really doing very advanced work, on the side, in the evenings or weekends, he was actually building an advanced type of cipher machine. Now, his motivation for that was, would have been partly, partly fascination with the logic of it, but there was an underlying awareness of the importance of the world situation and the rise of Nazi Germany 
And it's clear that that was part of the context in which she was thinking about it at that very early, early stage, I'd say, 1936-37. Now, what happened? Uh, Well, in 1938, it's very interesting, he had the chance to stay in the United States if he wanted to. Uh, He had a very good uh, opportunity to work with John von Neumann, who was then a very leading mathematical figure, uh, not to work on anything to do with computers, I may say, but in pure mathematics. And that would have been the normal, natural career move to make because he didn't have a particularly good um, career option at, at, at Cambridge. Anyone on the make, I mean, anyone wanting to get ahead in the mathematical world would have taken that like a shot, I would have thought. But he didn't. He went back to England and so definitely made a choice. And when he went back, he took the cipher machine with him and it's clear that he he communicated his ideas pretty well immediately to the British government and essentially uh, volunteered to to work in their cipher department. I don't know exactly how that contact was made, but it would have been made very easily because uh, in his college at Cambridge, King's College, there are at least two of the elder dons there had very good connections with the cipher department. One would have been John Maynard Kens, who's very famous as an economist, and another, there's a classicist uh, who'd worked uh, uh, in there, and, and indeed another fellow of King's went with Alan Turing to join up the um, cipher department in the, that 1938 period. But that was an interesting development because he was the first mathematical figure whom they took on. Uh, before then, it had been very much based on language and texts and like translation-type work, uh, rather than on mathematical principle. So he struck a completely new note. It would be interesting to know exactly what he thought or what he found, but then we essentially got on very well. And it was just what they needed because the department, as it was in 1938, was really quite stuck because of the difficulty of the machine ciphers used by Nazi Germany, of which, uh, of course, the famous name now is the Enigma machine. So, of course, Alan Turing wasn't working alone in this project. He There was a team with him who helped improve uh, an existing machine that helped with uh, cracking the, the Enigma code. Is that correct? Well, there's a whole sequence of things that happened. As I said, Turing got involved in the department in the summer of 1938. So he would have been already indoctrinated into the general idea of what was going on in the, in the crypto world. Uh, but then there was a major development in July 1939 when Polish uh, mathematicians who'd been employed by the Polish government uh, to look into the German Enigma problem, they got miles ahead. They were years ahead. They just had applied some really quite sophisticated ideas in algebra combined with some very adept spying. And uh, they'd managed to get uh, a knowledge of the internal workings of the military form of the Enigma and some very creative ideas about how to uh, how, how to break the messages as well. They conveyed all this to the British and the French in July 1939, just in time uh, before the um, World War started. And so Turing got that and ran with it very, very quickly. Uh, at the beginning of war in September 1939, he became full-time worker at the new centre at Bletchley Park uh, in central England. He was joined right away by some other mathematicians, uh, and so he was certainly not alone. Another guy called Gordon Welchman came from Cambridge, and he, he was a slightly older figure. He was, he, he was also excellent uh, at grasping what had to be done. Welchman and Turing together 
they designed the logic of this new machine, uh, which had got this crazy name of BOM, uh, because it was the name that the Poles had used for their machine for reasons that no one really completely knows why. And it did use uh, something of the same idea as the Poles had had, but greatly more, greatly extended, much, much more powerful. And this was extremely successful. It, uh, it's really worth noting that the what had been a quite old-fashioned sort of department really rose to the challenge extremely quickly. They commissioned the building of this machine uh, extremely quickly. Uh, it was already in building in 1st of November 1939, and it was working in the spring of 1940 and demonstrated that Turing's principle would work. So it was a very ex- exciting period. Uh, of course, they didn't answer the whole problem of the war. That was just the start. That was just the first thing that was uh, necessary to to get this industrialized breaking of uh, of the German communication system. But it was a very impressive start. Alan Turing had the opportunity during the Second World War and his work at Bletchley to get his hands dirty. Um, we know he was an excellent mathematician. He had great logic skills. Uh, but how were his engineering skills? Well, there's, yeah, there are several parts to this. The uh, bomb machine wasn't built by him. That was built by the British subsidiary of IBM, actually, who had a, a factory at Letchworth in Hertfordshire. But nevertheless, he needed some good understanding of how to turn mathematical logic into uh, electrical parts. And marvellously, he had that knowledge because that was just the basis on which he'd been working while away at Princeton on his own cipher machine. He was absolutely attuned to that. He didn't have any engineering qualification at all, and a mathematician wouldn't normally have been expected to, to have any acquaintance with engineering ideas, whatever. But he was very unusual because he had this out-of-the-box sort of mentality, which he, he just flowed out of mathematics into whatever else was going on, whether it's philosophy or whether it was into engineering. And he did that, and that was a, a great success. Later in the war, yes, he got even more hands-on, I think it's fair to say, and one important aspect of this is that it was the rise of electronics. That's the really crucial thing. The bomb didn't have any electronic parts, at least not to begin with. Uh, it was moving part, moving electrical relay parts like an old-fashioned telephone exchange. But electronic speeds became more and more important. Always faster, faster, faster is what they needed. And electronics gave the key for the work done in the later part of the war. And it was also vital for the other thing that Turing became very interested in in the middle part of the war, which was how to do speech encipherment uh, in a secure manner. That really does need electronic speeds and electronic equipment. And he got particularly interested in that and did get a hands-on acquaintance with electronic parts by devising and then building a speech scrambler of his own uh, original design in well, from 1943 onwards until the end of the war. So that was, again, a very remarkable thing, not the sort of thing that other mathematicians did at all. I mean, he did that, and it worked, and it's now actually being reconstructed as an uh, electronic uh, project at the Bletchley Park Museum. But the thing is, it wasn't just for the war work. It was a warm-up for something much, much bigger than he, that he had in mind, which was doing a large electronic design for a computer in the modern sense. And that's how he was able to do that in 1945. What would Alan Turing have been without the war, do you think? Did the war and his involvement at Bletchley change the course of his life? Well, that's a very interesting point. I think I have to say yes. And in conventional terms, 
Uh, of course, the war was a great interruption to everyone's careers, and and and, and there is a, a scientific obituary uh, of Turing by his uh, sort of father figure, Max Newman, which wrote off the wars just the sort of interruption, and uh, what a shame that it took him away from all the marvelous mathematics he was doing. But that really isn't the true picture of of what it meant to him. It really did create this bridge between a theory which was really his forte, and that was his thing. He was an abstract scientific thinker of the first class. But he gave it the bridge between that and actual practice, which was not something he was so good at, but really yearned for and uh, had a great... Uh, longing, he had a great yearning for seeing things actually happen in a way that was quite unusual. Uh, and without the war, he wouldn't have had that practical experience. It's partly just on the level of hardware, just on the level of knowing what uh, electronics could do. But there's also the question of motivation. He, would, he got experience of all these different um, code-breaking methods which all needed special machines built or had to reorganize everything um, uh, in some big way to cope with a new problem and it would have become very, very noticeable to him uh, that if you had a single universal machine it would become a matter of writing new software for new problems something now taken for granted but was completely revolutionary then Something that I didn't know about Alan Turing was that at some point, I think either before or just at the start of the war, he buried some silver bars. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, well, that's an example. He certainly did some odd, some odd things. Uh, uh, his idea—he wasn't—he wasn't completely daft. Uh, I mean, he had an economist. One of his main friends, David Champenow, was an economist, uh, quite a notable economist later on, and he had advised. Alan, that uh, uh, that uh, in the circumstances of the First World War, silver had kept its value very well. And he was guided by that and actually bought some silver, but he did make the big mistake of burying it in a uh, in some location in the country in Buckinghamshire near to Bletchley Park. Uh, he did that, I think, in 1940. And then by 1943 or 44, uh, he thought it was time to dig it up again. Unfortunately, he couldn't find it. Um, so it is, that is that is one of the stories about Turing, which caused much, uh, yeah, much merriment amongst uh, his friends. I think that's fair to say. And he had several goes. I mean, he didn't just uh, he didn't just uh, try it and then uh, say he couldn't find it. They had he invented a metal detector and had another go, and then and tried to, uh, again in 1952 with a with a pretty uh, fully professional metal detector and still couldn't find it. So um, it was a very unfortunate story. You're listening to Science for the People, and we'll be right back for more about Alan Turing after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today, we're digging into the history and biography of Alan Turing, the World War II codebreaker and father of modern computing. Helping us understand him better is Oxford mathematician Dr. Andrew Hodges, who is also the author of the book, Alan Turing, The Enigma. 
this World War II era and the stuff that was going on at Bletchley Park, it really seemed to be sort of the birth of the intelligence community as we know it today. Yes, that's a very fair point. That's a good way of looking at it. And rather than thinking thinking of it as a unique uh, group of people doing one thing, it's it really was part of the whole infrastructure of uh, intelligence that underlies the modern world. I and mean, that's really what happened. Apart from anything else, it was most important that um, by 1942, it became an Anglo-American cooperation story in which, of course, the British contribution was was uh, gradually not eclipsed because it was still very important, but it was gradually overtaken by the greater power of American industry. And, of course, set the scene for the whole post-war world, very much in parallel with the nuclear program of the Second World War. And that would be a good parallel to draw. Both during World War II and afterwards, um, Alan Turing had a lot of top secret government knowledge and significant access to classified information, both in the UK and in the US, where he liaised several times during the war. At this time and after, there was also considerable concern in this era about the possibility of homosexual men within the growing intelligence community being targets of blackmail. Well, that's absolutely right. Of course, there's a whole historical process there. Uh, in the Second World War in Britain, and that wasn't that wasn't an issue which was uh, I don't think had any impact at all. I don't think that was any particular worry whatsoever. Uh, but what happened after the Second World War was very different. After 1948, with the beginning of the Cold War, the concept of security, of vetting, and in particular American uh, conceptions of security and vetting uh, became dominant. Uh, there's no question of that. And, in fact, we have a very good anecdotal story, which ex- exemplifies this. Alan Turing was very open about being gay with the electronic engineer who worked with him on the speech encipherment uh, device in 1944 and uh, went on about it in a very unashamed manner. Uh, this other guy, Don Bailey, has explained that had that conversation taken place after 1948, he would have been placed in a very difficult situation where he would have known that his, well, essentially his superior was uh, had become clearly a security risk by the definitions of that post-war period. So there really was historical change in that period, which is linked with the whole development of the Second World War, the, the rise of the United States, and the development of the Cold War uh, afterwards. And Alan Turing was right in the middle of that, as someone who was developing his life as a gay man, especially after the Second World War, but was not in the position that other gay men were. He had access to the absolutely top secret information about what had happened both in Britain and in the United States uh, during that period. And uh, you're right in thinking that I think that's the most important part of the story. There is some modern interpretations of Alan Turing's story that have put him in a position to be a suspect of having been a spy. Was this an actual, was he ever suspected of spying at any point during his life? Uh, you mean spying for the, for the Soviet Union? Yeah. No, no, it's not the case. That certainly is no question. There's nothing of that ever arose in the Second World War. What you've got to look at in the period after he was revealed as a gay man in 1952 is that the classification of gay men as security risks. Uh, that's essentially because of being expected to be liable to blackmail, though in fact he stood up to blackmail extremely 
uh, forcefully. But uh, that's that's the issue. It's the way that gay men have been classified as security risks, and indeed were until in Britain until the end of the 1990s, when there was there's now been a very definite change. Um, but during the whole period of 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, recruitment to secret government agencies explicitly excluded gay men. Uh, and that's that's what we're talking about here. That's that's the issue. So the concern was obviously through blackmail. But the Alan Turing in your book seems, like you said, to be very open as about, about his homosexuality, especially given the time period he lived in. Was he unusual in this regard? Yes, I think he was comparatively unusual. He certainly, in his later life, he made really quite a point of being open about it, uh, so that he'd speak very freely about uh, events and his uh, who he fancied and that kind of thing in the computer laboratory at Manchester, where he was working, in a way that uh, was not at all. He uh, uh, wasn't that that was part of the scene or anything. It was just very definitely him. Yeah, yes, and in particular, though, we you can see his reaction to even the hints of blackmail in the way that he went to the police very directly when he was implicitly threatened with a, a with a blackmail situation in in 1952. I mean that was his reaction was to stand up to it. I mean he said so explicitly that he considered that he'd been uh, subjected to uh, an implicit form of blackmail and that he, he he took it immediately to the police, even though it was greatly to his disadvantage to do that. Okay, so the war is over and won, and peacetime, and in peacetime, the idea of a real physical universal computer uh, seems like a pretty good idea. Can you tell us about the ACE project? Well, that's what happens in 1945 uh, when Turing emerged from the war with this combination of the theory of the universal machine and the electronic knowledge and practical sense to put a design together. And you might expect, oh, well, we know what will happen. Of course, uh, it would all go completely pear-shaped and he won't get anywhere at all. Well, no, it didn't, actually. It wasn't like that at all. It was actually taken on very smartly by the leading British government scientific laboratory, the National Physical Laboratory, and it was adopted as their plan, very, again, very smartly and uh, with a great sense of rivaling the United States uh, in this area and uh, with a great... Uh, you know, announcements that it was taking on Alan Turing, who'd had this idea before the war, and now we are going to make his dream come true, and so forth. That was all good talk in 1946, but uh, it didn't go anything like as as effectively or rapidly as the developments of the code-breaking project had done during the war. I mean, I think it could well be that Turing was rather... Given, had been given rather a rosy picture of how quickly you could expect an institution to implement ideas and and get them accomplished, uh, because the building of the bombs and the breaking of the Enigma was really so effective and rapid in 1940-41, it would have given a rather unrealistic prospect of what you could do in the peacetime circumstances in 1946-47. He was a bit impatient, I think that's probably true to say, if he if he'd hung around and just, you know, he divided up his time in doing writing and uh, writing papers and things and just waited for them to catch up with his ideas, he probably could have remained in charge of the project and seen it come to fruition in, in, in 1950. But he was more in a hurry than that and was very impatient with the, with the pace of things in that period. The uh, machine was, in fact, built and it's been exhibited in the Science Museum in London ever since 1958. But somehow he never really quite got the credit for that as he, as he might have done. 
So it was finished, but did it meet with Turing's original vision? Well, it wasn't as big. The thing that was built in 1950 was nothing like, it was a scaled-down version of what he had in mind. Uh, what he had in mind would have been something much more like the computers that which, which were built ooh, and, uh, for the uh, end of the 50s sort of period. And that was probably just too ambitious. Uh, so he just didn't have such a large storage capacity and he wouldn't have been able to take on quite as many any problems uh, as, as he envisaged. But basically it was the same. It was the whole principle and they, it got everything going just as, as he imagined. His vision did run a bit ahead of what you could actually do in 1946, I think that's true to say. So what makes a universal machine universal? What's the big differentiating feature of this vision from other machines that came before, um, like the difference yeah. engine of Charles Babbage's design? Well, I'm using one now. I mean, that's the difference. I mean, I'm, I'm on a computer. I'm talking to you on a computer now, and I've loaded, I've loaded a routine called Skype, and it's doing all these, it performs all these operations, which allows me to talk to you at a moment's notice. I can change it, and I do uh, uh, word processing, or I, I uh, transmit a picture, or I do a drawing on it, or uh, I do a big calculation, or I do my maths work on it. And I don't do that by fiddling around with the inside of the machine at all. I just have to click on a, on a, and set a, a new procedure to work. And that's something everyone takes for granted now. You can just see the icons on the machine and you click them and bring them and set them off. And that's really is the idea of the universal machine. It has sufficient complexity to read the instructions of anything that you want it to do and to implement them. And Babbage's machine couldn't do that. Uh, and the essential difference is that, uh, Babbage had universal like talk around it, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't as powerful as Turing's idea. And the real reason is this: he thought of instructions and data as being completely different things. The data was held on cogwheels with numbers from naught to nine, whereas the instructions are on uh, a punch punch pieces of paper. And the machines which were built up to the 1930s followed along in that in that plan. And that seemed a very obvious thing to do. It seems obvious instructions are completely different from numbers. Well, what Turing did, it turned that on its head. You see, he said that instructions are, they're no different from numbers. So you just turn instructions into numbers, they're just the same. Uh, and that is indeed how computers work. When I download software, the downloading process doesn't know that it's software, it doesn't know whether it's numbers, doesn't know whether it's, it's software, doesn't know anything. It's just, just a string of noughts and ones. It just loads them and stores them and has them all ready to, uh, to go when you want them. And that fact that data and instructions can be stored exactly alike and it just needs the organization of the machine to call them into play, uh, that is essentially the revolution which, which Turing brought into, into being and which was then uh, everyone's followed since 1945. So after his work on the ACE project, um, Alan Turing moved to Manchester. And there's a quote from your book, to many at Manchester, Alan Turing was something of an embarrassment, foisted upon them, but they would have to put up with him. What did you mean by that? <laughs> it was a very engineering, electrical engineering based department running the computer there. Their whole emphasis was on the very advanced electronic engineering to run, the, to get the machine going. And they've been very successful in that. They were very leaders in that. They got ahead of the United States. They were they were marvelous. But that, uh, nevertheless, it had a completely different ethos to it. That wasn't his, which came from uh, from mathematics, from Cambridge, and from to do with ideas, and was to do with 
applying the machine to thinking about artificial intelligence, which is the last thing that the Manchester University people were thinking about. The, the, the machine there was essentially being built for the British Atomic Bomb Project, completely different. So it didn't fit in really at all uh, on, a, on that sort of uh, meshing with the, uh, the, the structure, the staff structure is concerned. And yeah, he just uh, he just did come from a different different culture. He had more links with the other mathematical people, I think. But even so, he wasn't quite the same as them because he had this way of being out of the box. Uh, didn't fit naturally into into any kind of structure at all. Most of what we know Turing for now is computing. Um, but during his last few years, he also developed an interest in mathematical biology and pattern formation. Well, that's what he did with the slightly awkward position that he had at Manchester. So you couldn't direct the design of the machine. That was the electronic engineers department. He lost interest in devising software schemes for it. That's a bit more surprising because he could have made a big go of that and could have done really definitive work on that if he'd set his, set his mind to it. Really, that's a shame that he neglected that in a way, but he was impatient and he wanted to get onto something quite new. I mean, it was typical of him that he tended to start things off with a big picture and not to follow through for years and years afterwards with all the, all the details. He tended to leave that for other people to fill in. And so by 1950, he really wanted something completely new to do. And he found that in a theory of mathematical biology, which could be implemented on the new computer. I mean, it was the first scientific project that the computer could be used in a serious way for us to do things you couldn't have done by hand calculation. And so he found that a perfect uh, uh, setting for both the machine he created, the ideas that have gone into it, but also this completely new picture of what life is about. I mean, what, uh, what biological growth, biological pattern, biological form, where it all comes from very much parallel to the quest for DNA structure, which was going on at the same time. But uh, complementary to it, it doesn't conflict with that. It's asking, answering a different question. What happens to the proteins which are read off from the DNA? How does creating a chemical soup with proteins in it read off from the DNA, how does that help you get a shape of an animal? That's a really puzzling question. And uh, that's what he addressed himself to. You're listening to Science for the People, and today it's a full hour on Alan Turing with mathematician Andrew Hodges, who is also the author of the biography Alan Turing, The Enigma. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People, and I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today, we're talking about Alan Turing, the mathematician, logician, and father of modern computing with Andrew Hodges, author of the book, Alan Turing, The Enigma. I do want to talk about the events surrounding Alan Turing's conviction for indecency. Um, the whole thing started because he reported a robbery, correct? Yes, all this happened in, uh, in it came to a head in January 1952. Yes, so he was based in Manchester. And it, it, from 1948 onwards, he'd had a rather long distance relationship with a young man called Neville, 
who we'd formed an, a nice relationship with at Cambridge in 1948, but they were a couple of hundred miles apart because it's absolutely typical situation where um, had to doing jobs in completely different places. So uh, it was in those circumstances that he he made this fateful pickup in uh, central Manchester, where there was a uh, well. It was the most. It was the only really. Um, notable pickup place for gay men in the whole of North England, really. And it was just within a half a mile of the university. He couldn't possibly have missed it. And uh, he's certainly started being seen there from, end, I think, the end of 1950 onwards. And he caught the attention of a young man who uh, he took a fancy to and had uh, well, started a relationship with uh, in his home, which was uh, south of Manchester, uh, and they met uh, about three times. And it would have become pretty clear, I'd have thought, that there was, this was not a very, um, it was not a very good idea, this relationship. The, uh, there was certainly an involvement with petty crime, and Turing's home was, in fact, burgled, a rather not terribly uh, impressive list of contents was taken, but he took that very seriously because he was essentially being blackmailed with the idea that he couldn't go to the police because if he did, everything would come out. Well, he stood up to that and did go to the police. He made up a rather thin story about how he knew who, who likely had done the burglary, which was a mate of the young man that he'd, he'd taken back. Uh, and, of course, the police saw through it very quickly. And uh, they took his, his, his affair very seriously because, well, it was criminal, but also it was the period when there was this great crackdown going on. The great uh, number of, of uh, prosecutions were taking place under the Conservative government, which had come in in 1951. And it was a great thing of making an example of people, and uh, he wasn't going to get away with them. Uh, once it was a matter of public record, there were a number of people who stood by Alan Turing um, throughout the trial and conviction and beyond, including his neighbors, uh, friends, past colleagues, and even his mother. Uh, would yes, this be unusual good. for the time? I think you probably could say it was unusual. And it is a testament to the way that he did keep uh, his natural sense of innocence and integrity counted for a great deal, I think, with his with everyone who knew him. Uh, it sounds too good to be true, but I think that is essentially what the situation was. Even people who are really repelled by the whole thing still felt that he, he was not, he could, they could not think of him as a bad person. And uh, so they, uh, and Max Newman, who was the professor in his department, who gave a character witness statement at his trial. Obviously, he was incredibly embarrassed by the whole thing. Uh, but yes, he said at the trial that uh, Alan Turing was one of the most profound and original mathematical minds of his generation, and indeed that he, had, he was a personal friend who was welcome at his house. And it was, I think, just part of a whole strand of, in, of intellectual integrity, which went back to his Cambridge roots as well, uh, involved the whole mentality of sticking by uh, some sense of, of principle and, and not just going along with a common view that Alan Turing did bring out of people. I think that's true. I think it's it's less clear about his mother. What, uh, quite what she thought, I don't know. But he certainly appreciated the fact that she she did in some sense stand by him as well, I think. You can see that rather clearly from his will, which he made in 
in January 1954. He made an extraordinary will uh, against everything that people would have expected. He divided his state into five, uh, essentially ignored his family obligations, except that he lumped his mother in as one of five people who uh, had stood by him, essentially stood by him as a gay man, so that it was his boyfriend, Neville Johnson, and uh, uh, another gay friend who became his executor, Nicholas Furback, later known as the biographer of E.M. Forster, and David Champanan, I've already mentioned, and Robin Gandhi, who was his most important student. It was a very, very personal statement about who had been important to him in that last period, and lumping his mother in with the other four was a very positive statement about her personal statement, not just a conventional family thing. Once convicted, Turing had a choice between two years in jail or two years of hormonal treatment. What was this hormonal treatment and what was the idea or uh, quote unquote science behind it at the time? Well, one of the ironies of the situation was that this was the liberal, this was the modern, the progressive, the scientific alternative that was being put forward uh, as opposed to the uh, prison regime. Uh, So it wasn't inflicted on him as if it was some extra cruel humiliation or that certainly was that. Uh, it was part of a modernizing trend in the, in, the, in medical science. Um, the idea, it didn't seem to work very well, but the idea was he'd injected estrogen and just neutralized uh, a, a man's sexual desire of all forms. It wasn't meant to make him heterosexual, it was meant to make him lose any interest in, in sex at all. And so he... We went along with this because the alternative would have been prison and, and that would have been uh, just on a basis of professionalism or science. He wouldn't have done that. So he had to make that uh, great sacrifice. And what were the effects of this um, hormone treatment on him? Well, it's not clear to me exactly how dire they were. It wouldn't have done any good. Uh, I mean, it certainly made I mean, it made his um, breasts grow and you know, so on. And that was even quite noticeable. Um, it only lasted for a year, and after that, that was the end of it. Uh, but I don't know to what extent it had other physical symptoms. Uh, uh, but I think the important thing is his reaction to it, which is well as defiance, also humour. I mean, Turing's humour is a really important part of the whole story, actually, because and you get it very directly if you read his writing on artificial intelligence and his, the Turing test and all that. It's just full of jokes. And it's full of, full of humor. In fact, his criterion for whether a, a machine can be said to be intelligent is more or less whether it can, can see a joke or not. I mean, it's that, that, on that level, he wanted to engage fully with what one means by, by human communication and understanding. And so his, his reaction to the, all these events was one of, uh, of defiance, but expressed uh, with a, well, black humor, I suppose. I mean, he mordant humor. Uh, that was his reaction. Also, it's a move sideways. Uh, he wasn't one who would absolutely say, I'm resisting this, I object to this, I, I'm against this uh, in any situation. He rather tended to move in a sideways direction to do something that was his own thing in some different way. Uh, you can see that a number of things that he did. And in particular on this case, his reaction was to say, well, if I'm uh, the English law is as it is, I can go abroad to other countries. They can't get me there, basically. 
And his first reaction, really, was to go to Scandinavia. He got very, very interested in Scandinavia, I think almost certainly because he'd got wind of the beginnings of the very early gay rights movement, which had started in 1948 in Denmark. Uh, he got very interested in this and actually started learning Danish and went to Norway in summer of 1952 uh, while he was on this treatment. I mean, so my reaction is how much did it affect him? I don't know, but what's significant is his reaction was to defy it, not only in a personal way, but uh, in, of course, by keeping up his work. And he was extremely effective in keeping up his, his uh, morphogenetic work, his work on the mathematical biology during this whole period. And indeed, he took on new interests as well. He had expressed uh, new research ideas in this period, uh, not just in the things I've already mentioned. As someone who didn't know Turing personally, but has spent countless hours researching him, reading his work and his writings and speaking to those who did know him, what do you think was going on in his head the night he died? Because his suicide seemed to catch a lot of people by surprise. Yes, the, the actual the actual moment took everyone by surprise. There was no there was no particular uh, sign of it. I mean, he was working on the last day on the Friday before the weekend when he died. Well, my own belief is that the uh, there's a whole sequence of things which hit him, uh, which the trial and being open and in newspapers and everything was the was the first, and then there's this actual assault on his body with the um, with the estrogen injection and so on. Uh, but that only went on until uh, March of 1953. So it was over a year after that when he died. And as I said, he had was full of activities and indeed full of this defiance, in particular these trips abroad to Norway in 1952 and then to Greece in May 1953. Uh, both, I mean, they were sex tourism uh, in modern terms. They were sex tourism jaunts. And that was the whole point of it. Uh, he'd always liked, I think he got the idea of going to Paris in particular after the war and that this, this is just a continuation of that. Uh, well, my guess is that that was actually about, uh, it was actually very important to what happened, uh, to his life because those, uh, those trips and indeed his whole uncontrollable spirit would have been of enormous uh, anxiety to security authorities in that period, which was the most paranoid part of the Cold War. I mean, this was the, this was the very period of the McCarthy business and Oppenheimer essentially on trial and everyone, no one knew who was doing what. The whole concept of trust, confidence, knowing who what was going on was, was very, very fraught. And the last thing anyone would have wanted was their top guy from the communications and crypto world wandering over Europe, meeting goodness knows who in this very uh, tense period. So I think it's extremely likely that there were meetings we don't know about in which he was really given the message that this was not on and that he was not in a position to have a, a life of his own at all. And uh, I think it's highly likely that there was other uh, things that we uh, remain secret because he ne never discussed any of this to his friends, only just dropped hints about them. Uh, I think that's the most likely uh, background that would have been a uh, made him made him feel that he just could not live a true life of any kind. 
It's widely believed that Alan Turing's death, or widely accepted, I should say, that Alan Turing's death was a suicide, um, though some say it may have been an accident or even possibly murder. Why is Turing's death so ambiguous to some people? Well, he, he, he dressed it up as an accident. He, uh, it's, uh, his, he, he would have been so his mother could think that, or anyone else who wanted to believe that. Uh, he'd conceived of such a plan back in 1937 when he would have been miserable well, I think for completely different reasons, really. I think in 1937, his whole anxiety while away in America was that he would never find any real satisfaction in life because it just seemed so impossible to to, uh, to find a, a, a relationship with a man that you know that was a mutual relationship. He certainly conceived of a plan for suicide at that time, and it involved an apple and electrical wiring, which was indeed what he put into effect in 1954. Uh, so the point of a plan is to disguise it, or at least to allow people to think it's an accident. It's quite difficult to imagine how you would take a large amount of cyanide by accident, but he found a way. I mean, it's uh, he dressed it up as a chemistry experiment in which you use cyanide for dissolving uh, gold for gold electroplating. Uh, and that's what he did. And that, of course, is indeed what his mother claimed. It, it had been just been this accident. It got on his fingers by mistake, uh, uh, anyway, some other people do believe this, but uh, it's clear to me he rigged up this thing. He said it. He rigged it up in March 1953. It was during a crisis which occurred when this boy from Norway um, turned up and was sent back by the police, and he was under surveillance. And uh, I'm no, pretty sure that it was at that period that really he realised that he was in an extremely, uh, extremely exposed situation and uh, might choose to take his life rather than go on with it. So that's the reason why people can indeed argue about whether it was an accident. I think it's because he, he, he designed that. I mean, he chose to leave it in that way. We're almost out of time, but I do have one last question that actually comes from a listener on Twitter. Uh, RJ Downard asks, what might surprise or shock Turing most if he could see the world now in 2015? The wide ranging acceptance of gay rights compared to his time or the ubiquity of computers? Well, <laughs> it's hard to know which. I, I agree. Uh, I think that puts the, your, your listeners got a very acute, uh, uh, perception there of what uh, what the things that have happened. It's certainly true that the whole whole matrix, the whole infrastructure around the idea of rights and of life has changed, uh, and that's in a way that's hard to express, really. Uh, but at the same time, it's the I think, as far as computers are concerned, it's the cheapness and availability that might have surprised anyone of that era. He didn't foresee the miniaturization of electronics. Um, he, uh, the transistor had come along in 1948-49, but he, I don't think he made any comments on that particularly. He didn't really see how small and therefore how cheap and how enormous stores of uh, memory could be made available to billions of people on the planet by this point. I don't think anyone quite saw that happening. So I think he would have been a bit surprised by that. Andrew, thank you so much for being here and for sharing with us some of Alan Turing's story. I thank you very much for inviting me. If you want to learn more about Andrew Hodges or Alan Turing, we've got links to get you started in today's show notes at scienceforthepeople.ca. You can also follow... You can also follow Science for the People on Twitter, Facebook, or Google+, or find us on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show, listen to past episodes, and leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.